Well, we'll start with this morning. Here you go, Matt. Here you go. If you have, I know, I know I've been telling you guys for the last eight weeks, if you have questions, we'll try to get to them. But we'll start with this morning, and then any questions from this morning or any points from discussion from this morning? Elsa. I have a question. Well, in the on, mic, into the mic, right in the mic. I have a question on um, the verse where Jesus said, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. What is our, what is expected from us as far as fighting the enemy, you know, mm. especially coming out of the charismatic church ah, where you yes. bind demons and all that stuff? What is expected from us as far as that goes? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, notice that Jesus speaks to the 72. This is a very specific audience that Jesus has given this authority to. Nowhere in the epistles that I'm aware of, um, in any of the instruction of the churches, is such a claim uh, repeated. And from what we can tell, um, the dealing with exorcism is really limited um, to to that first inner circle. In fact, Zeb, can you look up the seven sons of Sceva in Acts for me? Um, we do have an example of somebody trying to, this is what I was trying to say in the sermon, you don't want to take this up and just give it a shot and see what happens. Either the Lord has authorized and empowered you to, to wield authority over demons, or he hasn't, and if he hasn't, it is not going to end well for you. Um, you got it, Seb? Yeah. Uh, Hold on. Acts, what's the reference for the... This is Acts 19, uh, starting at verse 11. Um, that's where the, the passage picks up. Um, says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus, of the, the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So, you don't want to... You don't want to mess around with this. Either the Lord has authorized you or he hasn't. If he hasn't, it's going to end badly. Um, so my first statement is, nowhere that I'm aware of are we commanded to do this. And there's no instruction in the letters to the churches that tells us when, how we are to exercise demons. Um, and so I, I don't think this is ministry that we follow in. I mean, I think Satan's still active in the world. And If you could turn to 2 Corinthians 10, um, I think we can certainly pray that the Lord would do But the type of boldness where they're commanding, I command you, you better have that from the Lord that he's given you that authority, or you're going to be a son of Sceva. Now, praying for someone who may or may not be demonized, there's, I got some helpful books on this. David Pallison's probably written the best book um, called Power Encounters. It's out of print now, but you can pick it up for like a buck used on Amazon. I highly recommend that if this is a topic that interests you. But let's, let's get to 2 Corinthians 10 where spiritual warfare is introduced. And, and I've heard spiritual warfare defined so many different ways. I had some dear brothers um, and sisters who did a prayer walk around our hometown in Laconia 
um, claiming it for Jesus, which I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I don't think that has a whole lot to do with spiritual warfare. Um, so I'm not opposed to prayer walks, praying that God would you know, work mightily in a city. But when Paul talks about spiritual warfare, he defines it very clearly. So pick it up in verse chapter 10. Um, let's start in verse 2. I beg you that when I am present, I may not sh- have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on receiving, again, showing against some who support us, who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. And then Paul's going to describe how he wages war. So there's a spiritual warfare. It's not fleshly. It's not earthly. It's a spiritual warfare. And Paul's going to tell us what sphere and with what weapons he fights. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. So I want you to note the sphere that Paul says the war he is engaged in takes place. It takes place in regards to destroying strongholds. Verse 5, we destroy arguments, opinions, knowledge, and thoughts. What are we talking about? We talk about knowledge, arguments, opinions, thoughts. Talking about thinking. I I would submit to you that spiritual warfare in the first instance, is the battle over what men and women will believe and think in their heart. Certainly that makes sense as it relates to the gospel, does it not? What will people believe about the gospel? What will they think and opinion will they have about the gospel of Jesus Christ? After all, that matter is what the disciples are being sent out to proclaim, God's peace upon those towns. And in doing so, he saw Satan falling from heaven. As the gospel went out to those towns, Satan was being further cast down and his kingdom was advancing. It also matters for believers. All of sanctification ultimately boils down to, what do you believe, what do you think? All of our actions flow out of what we believe. All of our actions flow out of, and all of our feelings flow out of what we believe. We may not even be aware of what we believe. Well, I'm going to give you an example. You and I interpret and think through everything before we act or feel. Prove it to you. you may not, you're not even aware you do it. If, you open, if someone knocks on your door, and you open the, and I open the door, and there's somebody there with a mask and a bloody knife in their hand, whether or not it's Halloween or not will determine whether or not I scream like a girl and run away, Right? Right? I have to interpret it. If I know it's Halloween, I'm going to interpret it differently than if it's not Halloween and there's a masked person with a bloody knife. Um, so before the adrenaline comes out, before the fear and before the terror, I have to cognitively interpret this somehow. And we interpret things based on our belief structures, our worldview, what we think. And Paul is saying that his spiritual warfare is battling for what people believe and what they think. And when you're dealing with sin, you're dealing with strongholds of thought and belief. So I think that's the primary sphere of what Paul says is warfare, spiritual warfare. Um, okay, unless we take the entire hour and spend it on that, that's as far as I'll go right now unless you want to go further. But um, what we don't want to do is take narrative describes what happens. Narrative is not normative. Just because something happens in a narrative encounter does not mean that's supposed to be repeating and repeating. I mean, again, I've, I've heard of churches where you know, the pastor told the men to march around the women they loved and the walls of their heart would fall like Jericho. <laughs> not making this stuff up, folks. I wish I was. Um, and because it happened there, so it can happen with you. And, and um, 
yeah, this is the book of Acts is a record of how the Holy Spirit finished what Jesus started through the church. And a lot of what takes place in Acts is is unique to Acts. There's a lot of features that will not be repeated that are in Acts. Um, and so when we're looking to how we're to conduct ourselves in the church, the letters in the New Testament epistles are most directly related to that. So Paul, anyways, First Timothy, I write these things in case I'm delayed so that you'll know how to conduct yourself in the church, which is the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I'm writing this letter so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the church. So, so I'd be looking there first and foremost for instruction. Okay, is, is exorcism going to be an important part of our church ministry? And it's just silent on the topic. So I, I go back to, unless Jesus has authorized you like he did them, I'd I'd encourage you to be cautious. Okay. Next question. Dean LeVang in the back. This is maybe minor, but uh, you made a reference from Isaiah 14, 13. Yeah. And in my NAS, King James, and um, ESV, it says north, and you said earth. So north, where, where? What verse? Verse fourteen. Fourteen thirteen. Fourteen thirteen. And then also, there's an asterisk on my ESV, and it says, "Or in the remote parts of Zaphon." Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. So it's a Hebrewism. The question is, what's meant to be the Hebrewism is supposed to be as far reaches of the north. The Zaphon may be north, but yours translation also had what'd you say? Earth. No, you said. I said earth. No, mine, I misread it then. That was just, that was, that was my error. Mine says north too. Um, cop, no, no, no. People, you've heard me say this before. You shouldn't care what I think unless I can back it up. And I can make mistakes, so call me on it. I am not some authority. This is the authority. So thank you very much, Dean. I misspoke. And the word of God is worth correcting when people misspeak it. So thank you. You have served us well, Dean. Next question. We hit the doctrinal election hard, and I got no questions. This is inconceivable. Uh, I, I'm going to disappoint you too, because this has nothing to do with that. But uh, I missed the the first of the series. Uh-huh. What's the difference between seventy and seventy-two, as far as the? Because okay, okay, no, that's a good question. That's a flat-out text variant issue, meaning the Greek text. We got twenty-five thousand partial Greek manuscripts, five thousand complete Greek New Testaments. Um, dating back as early as the earliest P52s, about 125 AD. Considering the Gospels were written, the Revelation was written around 90 AD. We're talking, we got documents that were within 50 years of the original. Um, amongst that manuscript evidence, 70 and 72 is about evenly split. And when you're trying to figure out textual criticism, which is lower criticism, which is trying to answer the question, what is the text? What, what did, in this case, Luke write? One of the principles you follow when you got multiple readings is um, trying to come up with an explanation for how a scribe who's trying to be careful would make a mistake. So sometimes that's really easy. Oftentimes what we'll find, a lot of the errors in copying are someone who's copying Luke adding something from Matthew in. And it makes perfect sense. He's copied Matthew so many times that he just assumes this should be here too. So it'll be something like in Matthew... Um, to parallel accounts that both occur in Matthew and Luke, they'll add a phrase from Matthew in. And so it seems very reasonable that that's what, what happened. Well, the problem is the number 72 or the number 70 both have Old Testament background options. 
how many men did Moses pick to lead Israel? Seventy. So 70 could fit because Jesus has just been identified as the greater prophet like Moses and just as Mo Moses appointed 70 men, but he didn't pair them up. Okay, so, so some scribes could think, oh, surely this is referencing that event in, in Deuteronomy and Numbers. The other possibility is in the table of nations in Genesis 10, where you get the genealogy that's spread of the table of nations, there are 72 nations listed. And so the picture here would be this: these seventy-two would prefigure, in some sense, the um, ministry of the of these same servants to the nations, to, to the world. Both are possible, um, and it's really hard to settle. So it, I don't have a good answer beyond that. It's seventy or seventy-two. Probably ultimately doesn't make a big difference, but I was just curious. But the oh yeah, that it really boils down to flat out text issue. So it, it's, it doesn't often happen like that, but this is just one of those. The Greek we've got a variety of of texts, and it's not an easy fix. Um, yeah, Candy. This is just a question on a verse you referenced in C um, number two. It said, "Rejoice in your election." And you have Revelation seventeen eight. When you mm -hmm. read it, it didn't match mine, but I'm just Relation 17, 8. Okay. Let me get my little things here. <laughs> and here. Okay. Revelation. The dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. You don't have that? Yeah, I, I, I start in the middle of the verse because all I care about is the written from the foundation of the world in the books of life. It, it, it takes place in the middle of a bunch of action that I don't want to set the context for because it would take too much time. I'm just saying that when this book of life gets picked up in Revelation both times, it's book of, written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Um, so that, that's, that's, I just jumped in towards the end of the verse. So, yeah, apparently my text reading this morning was problematic. I apologize. Um, Matt. All right, I'm going to go to the book of life. <laughs> so... We were having a little side discussion about it on if your name is in that book of life, pre-world. Yeah. Um, can we go into the purpose of being a missionary? Um, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Bring it. Um, I have a an, an answer she gave me, which is not you, your name may be there, but you have to accept that. And is it part of a missionary's work or our work to spread that word so people are able to accept that. Let, let, let's, let's go to Titus chapter 1. It's a great question. Um, I'm going to argue the opposite. I'm going to argue that confidence in God's election is in the New Testament used as the, the, the motivation for missions. The reason Paul is enthusiastic about his commission as being the apostle to the Gentiles is precisely because God has chosen who will be saved. I'm going to suggest to you that's the currency the New Testament makes with it. I know that that's counterintuitive. I get it, but I, I think we can. I can back that claim up. And if I can't, thank you. Zeb's got Zeb's got my back here. Zeb, whose like Twitter handle is like Calvinist Zeb, um, has, has got my back here. So um, I want you to notice Paul's greeting. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope 
of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. At the proper time manifesting his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So Paul opens his letter writing to, I mean, that'd be a weird way. Imagine if I got up in the, the morning and did the announcements. Greetings, elect of God. That's so how he opens his letter. That'd be completely biblical. I'd throw most of us for a loop because it'd be odd, but that's how he greets his letter. Um, making it clear, again, this election is God's according to um, their knowledge of the truth, which of course is God in this, and the hopes of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Um, this is something that has its roots back in prehistory, before Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Before It wasn't as though Adam and Eve did something and then God reacted. Okay, now I've got to come up with a salvation plan. What that means is the fall is known and determined before God ever said, let there be light. How else can God promise a salvation before the ages began if there isn't need of salvation? All those events are are known by God. All those events are are there and in place. And they're, it's not God is not reacting. He's not. Oh, what am I going to do now? Um, I have in the notes Ephesians one. Well, we'll go to Revelation. I'll go to Zeb's passage. I'm going to turn to Ephesians one. Um, uh, starting at which ver- which chapter and verse, please. Uh, yeah, this is Revelation five. Uh, starting at verse six, the main main section is uh, nine through nine and ten. Um, and between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, yeah. And by the way, read, notice, go, go a little further, chapter 6. I want to talk about sovereignty. This is a different type of sovereignty, but I mean, look at this. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw unto the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So here are martyrs, Christian faith, under God's throne. And they're going to cry out to him. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they're each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had. Is God sovereign? And God has appointed how many martyrs there will be. I mean, I know this is scary stuff because you don't generally put these into songs, and you know, but God claims sovereignty. Um, Hold on a second, I'm looking up another passage. Um, Boom. And yeah, go to go to Second Timothy two. And then we'll end up in Ephesians 1. 2 Timothy 2. 
and we're going to look at we're going to look at verse ten. Um, but let's pick it up in the paragraph, verse eight. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in chains as a criminal. The word of God is not bound. So Paul says, "Hey, I'm an evangelist. I'm the, the the apostle to the Gentiles, and I'm in chains because I'm preaching Christ. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect." that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, that they may is not to say somehow they're not going to. He's doing because he wants to be the one to bring them to faith. He's the one who wants to be used by God to bring them in. And what here's, here's the logic. When, 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 um, Jesus, when Paul has the Macedonian vision, the Lord says, I have many people in that town. So if God tells you, I have many people who are to come to faith, how zealous will you be in that ministry in Macedonia? Because the Lord's already told you that the harvest is there. So the logic is something like this. Since the, the Lord will reap his harvest, since the Lord will bring in those who are his, this can't fail. This can't fail. This will succeed. Um, the lamb will receive the reward for which he was slain. And um, so it becomes the motivation for missions. It becomes the confidence for missions. This can't fail. Um, now, um, the question then is, well, then, but why bother, right? That's the option, right? Why bother? Do you pray at all? Does God know what you need? It's a simple question, yes or no. Does God know what you need? Does God love you? Has God promised to give you those things that you need? So why pray? What, are you informing him? Telling him something he didn't know? Or maybe he doesn't love you enough until you bug him. He's like that unjust, you know, judge who I fear neither God nor man. You know, you got to be a persistent widow and bug him because he doesn't really love you that much. He's kind of indifferent. But if you bug him enough, he'll. Why do you pray? Because we get to participate in this. So, so to me, there is a rescue operation in plan that cannot fail that is taking place around this. And I, this little insignificant little person that I am, I get to be God's fellow worker. And I get to participate in events that will ring in eternity with angels covering their faces in awe and wonder. And I get to, we shook that bridge together. I, I get to be his fellow worker doing that. Um, that's why we do it. Um, and also because, and I want to be clear on this, and, and if this is a, we've I've actually, out of all the topics we've sort of stopped and done a standalone message on, we've done baptism, we haven't actually done election and predestination. So I'm actually thinking about sometime in the new year, taking a week or two and just talking through this. Because one of the important things to get is this, and I want to insist on this. Um, we intuitively think that divine agency, divine causality, eliminates human agency and causality. So what we, what we naturally think is either God did it or I did it. Either God chose me or I chose him. Um, and so when you hear, no, ultimately God chose you, then we immediately think, well, then I guess my choice was meaningless. It was pointless. It was, it was meant to be. There was no real choice. But the Bible is emphatic that um, divine agency, divine sovereignty does not negate human um, agency, moral culpability, and volition. What I mean to say is God's choice 
God's sovereign choices do not negate the morality and the moral weight of what I do or the reality of my choices. There's a mystery there. I don't know how that works. I'm not saying I know how that works. But I am insisting the same Bible that says he hardens whom he hardens also says, go, go to Genesis 50, 20. Um, 50, Genesis 50, verse 20. For anyone, for anyone who's interested, um, the theological concept we're examining is, com- is um, concurrence. The philosophical title for it's compatibilism, but just say that in case anyone wants to dig up in this further. But um, we'll just look at it in biblical terms. Genesis 50, Joseph's brothers are terrified because good old dad, Jacob, has just died. And it occurs to them, perhaps, just maybe, Joseph has withheld his revenge just because dad was around. Now that dad's dead, he's, I mean, he could really put the screws to them. He could really he could throw them in jail, right? Um, he, he could do worse than that. So they come to him. Um, look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And let's recount, what did they do? They took him captive. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. They faked his death. And then in slavery, he was sold into Egypt. He was, he was deported into a land. He didn't know the language. I mean, just imagine if one day, and people just, you know, th- throw a sack over your head, throw you in a van, and next thing you know, you're sold into slavery somewhere else in the world. That's, that's what happened to Joseph. Um, oh, yeah, imagine it was your brothers, your family. You have a family meeting, and next thing you know, they're loading you on a plane. You know? And you're, you're, yeah, um, and you're going over somewhere in the Middle East to be, you know, uh, uh, a slave. Um, so your father. So then they, then they play their little cheap low card. Verse sixteen. They went. They sent a message to Joseph. They don't even have the guts to show up to him. They sent a message to Joseph saying, "Your father gave this command before he died. <laughs> Remember what Dad said. Remember what Dad said." Um, Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now get Joseph's response here. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. You did evil, you planned evil, you did evil, and you'll have to deal with the Lord for that. But God meant it for good. What is the antecedent of it? It is a pronoun, and pronouns take the place of other nouns. The antecedent is evil. You meant evil against me, and God meant it, that evil, for good. Two causalities. God planned these events. His brothers planned these events. His brothers racked up evil to their account in planning these events. And God did something good in planning these events. That, I don't know how to explain that. I'm just trying to say the Bible presents it as that. That it is not, oh, we've determined that God planned this. Therefore, human agency and moral culpability evaporates. Nope. What do we read in Philippians? Positively, because that's the negative side. That's sin. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So get to work. Get to work 
Work out your salvation, fear and trembling. Why? For it's God who works within you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Matt, you need to get to work because God's working in you to create the motivation and the accomplishing of his will. Well, if God's going to make me want to do it and then make me actually do it, let go, let God kick back. That's precisely why Paul says get to work. Again, there's a mystery here. I'm just saying that's the way the Bible treats it. So we've got to watch ourselves when we think, oh, well, if God chose me, then I guess that makes my choice kind of insignificant, unimportant, and not real. Nope. Let me, let me say this again. We freely, what I mean by freely is without coercion. We freely choose Christ. We must choose Christ. We're pleaded with, commanded to choose Christ. Um, the Bible is emphatic on that. No one is having their arm twisted behind their back. I don't want to come, you know. But at the end of the day, the Bible is equally emphatic, I believe, and this is where we'll go to Ephesians 1, um, that God claims responsibility. And, and this is why I brought this up. God wants to be praised for this. God wants to be praised for this. I don't know if you've noticed it, but in some of our songs are, are praise for these types of things. All I have is Christ. Um, how, how does the second verse go? Has anyone got that, Rick? But as I walked my hellbound race, oblivious to the cost, you, and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You did this. You led me. You brought me. You showed me. I not saying I figured it out. Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 are probably the two uh, most um, difficult passages for people that are trying to explain away God's sovereignty. They're, they're really challenging to get through because they're just so there. Um, what makes it more challenging is that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence in Greek. Yeah. So we'll read it. And I'm going to emphasize pronouns. What I want you to do is um, pay attention to what we do, what he does, and what is done to us. I'm going to tell you, you're going to see all three members of the Trinity at work. All three members of the Trinity are doing stuff. And what you're going to constantly see is his will, his purposes, his grace, his choice. And when we show up, stuff is being done to us. We, we are receiving passive verbs. So here we go. And I'm going to emphasize the he's and the him's. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. There's that word. Predestination is a biblical term. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Notice the connection, election and praise. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of all time to unite all things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And I'm going to press that all things hard. 
I'm going to take all to mean all there. And look in the face, that means the Holocaust. That means, um, that means the plague. That means black death. That means hurricanes and typhoons. I think he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, otherwise, the promise in Romans 8, we know that for this, those who love God, all things work together for good. Well, accept all that stuff that God has nothing to do with. No, he works all things together according to the counsel of his will. So that, why does he do that? Verse 11. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We receive all the blessings. He receives the praise. He does all the action. We are acted upon. So um, in verse 3, he blessed us. In verse 4, he chose us. In verse 5, he predestined us. In verse 6, he has blessed us. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 8, he lavished on us. Verse 9, he has made known to us. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, we were sealed with the promise. Holy. Do you see how whenever we show up, stuff's being done to us, and it's always good stuff? What are we doing in this passage? We're receiving. That's what we're doing. What's every member of the Trinity doing? They're at work saving us. And God takes full credit start to finish. Um, and he says he does it this way for the praise of his glorious grace. Um, so... Yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to do when... Yes? Microphone! Just piggybacking on your previous point, the very next verse, uh, we're told uh, why he therefore goes and preaches and teaches the people things. It's because, simply because of those things he's just been mentioning right. about all the predestination and, and because of all that God's done for us uh, uh, and because God has chosen his people already, that's why Paul then right. um, preaches and, and teaches yeah. and prays for and, yeah. and so on. And, and let me be clear on one point before J. Bring the mic back to JP. I want to be clear on one equal point. When you're dealing with these truths, it's equally important to get truth in balance. So I want to emphasize the absolute sovereignty of God over salvation. I also want to emphasize an equally biblical truth. Anyone who wants Jesus can have him. There is no invisible glass wall where people are like, I want to come, and they can't. They're sort of like, you know, looking through the cracks. And Jesus says, no one who comes to me will I turn away. No one. Now, I would suggest, where does the desire to want Jesus come from? And I'd suggest that's a work of God in your heart. But there are no people who want Jesus, but sorry, you're not elect. The state, I would say, is much more like this. Man naturally wants nothing to do with Jesus, wants nothing to do with righteousness. John 3, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil things hates the light, does not come to it, lest his deeds should be exposed. So naturally, because I have a sin junkie, I don't like the light that exposes that. And I'm like a cockroach scurrying away. Okay, And so if God leads me to that, precisely because I get to do what I want, I will run away. So unless God removes that veil and, and changes my heart and places a desire and convicts me with his spirit, I'm going to keep running as much as the day is long. Not because I'm coerced from the outside, but precisely because God's left me to myself. You can have what you want. 
And in the case of those who are being saved, his spirit is actually drawing and working. And, and So the people that, who, who are running, they can't blame God. They're running because they love their sin. Um, JP. So we just heard a wonderfully full-orbed answer to that question, but nine times out of ten when I'm asked this question, I don't have the Bible in front of me and 20 minutes to give an answer. <laughs> so my... My suggestion to you is to answer in the following way. Um, You know, when we know as Christians, we believe as Christians that God declared the beginning in Genesis and the end in Revelation. He's also declared the means. We understand as Iowans that a farmer can plant a seed, he can till the ground, and he can water the seed and fertilize, but he can't make that seed grow. God has declared the means of that growth is through all those things, but ultimately he gives the life to that seed. Yeah. So we understand that fundamentally. Just apply that to your spiritual nature. God has declared that we are to sow the seed, but he is the one that tills the ground and yeah. prepares the soil. Yeah, that, that's excellent. I'll make a point that G.I. Packer makes. And by the way, there's a nice small little book. All the elders read this a couple of years ago, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and the entire purpose of this little book, short little book, may even have a couple of copies in our little bookstore booth thing, is to try to say, okay, how do you how do you evangelize if this is true? And he starts in the first chapter by establishing God's sovereignty and then works the other way. Okay, since God is sovereign, how does that affect evangelism? And here's how he, one of the ways he proves the sovereignty of God. He says, everyone on their knees is a closet Calvinist. What he means is this. People don't pray this way. Oh, Lord, would you please give my coworker Todd an opportunity to hear the gospel and make an uncoerced decision to do what he wants, but respect his freedom because he's got to do it. Just let, give him an opportunity to make a decision. Or do we say, oh, Lord, God, save, save my friend Todd. Right? We pray for their salvation. We don't pray that the Lord would put them in place so they can make an unbiased, uninfluenced free choice. I don't know anyone who does. So Packer starts by saying, look, on our knees, we're closet Calvinists. We, we, we recognize God's sovereignty. Lord, save them. Move in their heart. Draw them. If necessary, as C.S. Lewis described his own conversion, kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Um, so, so that's one peace. But yeah, it's just important to say the other. We are not saying. Therefore, we're all a bunch of robots running around, puppets. God is, there's, a, there's Proverbs, is it 19.1? The king's hands, the king's heart is streams of water. The Lord directs them wherever he wills. There's, there's a synergy. There's a, when you hear me use the term compatibilism, it's the notion that God's sovereignty works in and through human agency. And not in a way that conflicts or fights, but in a way that somehow, apparently, fits perfectly so that the Lord can stir up the King Cyrus to issue a decree to, to send Israel home. And he's not doing it like Cyrus wakes up one day and his eyes is glass over and he gets like possessed. And he's doing it. He's really doing it. How, okay, how is the scripture written? How is the scripture written? The spirit... The Spirit in, inspires Paul, right, to write Romans or Luke to write Luke. But are we to think Luke's somehow like doing automatic writing with his eyes rolled back in his head? When Paul says, I long to see you, is, does Paul not truly long? There's, somehow, Paul's personality, his vocabulary, one of the things we've learned from studying the New Testament is the different authors have distinct vocabulary sets. Paul uses different words than Luke. Um, 
their personality, their their own mind, and their their way of saying things makes it into the text, and yet God sovereignly has caused it to say exactly what he once said. Exactly. So, I don't know how it works. I believe it does. In the same way, God can declare the end from the beginning, work all things according to the counsel of his will, and you and I make real choices that no one's forcing us to make that have real moral weight or culpability attached to them. Is there a mystery there? Sure there is. I just believe the Bible declares that's the way things are. So, um, did someone have their hand up? Yes. Greg, Elsa's got a mic, and then Greg's next. I'm just thinking, if it wasn't the explanation you just gave of the sovereignty of God working all things, that gives us um, an explanation of pain, right? If there's pain in the world, God is working that. Otherwise... Because a lot of people say, you just serve a God who's a monster, right. allowing all this stuff. Right. But if God didn't work that, there'd be no explanation for that pain, and it would right. be senseless. Right. 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 Greg? Your explanation was exactly the one that Matt was looking for, but there is another one uh, equally as uh, valuable, and that is... Yes, sir that uh, God tells us to. Yeah, yeah. And all I'm trying to say is, all, no, that's no, God. Amen. What do you say to that? I, I'm mainly just trying to make it clear that when we say position A, a lot of people will hear us in that affirmation of God's sovereignty. They'll hear in that an implicit denial that you and I make choices, which we've never said. But for most people, it's the either or. So if God did it, then I guess I'm just a puppet on a string. Well, you and I know, so I, I more and more as I talk to people, finding the need to say A and B. God is sovereign, and you and I make real choices because so many people I talk to, when you say the first one, will assume the second, that we're just overall oh, robot. Nope. You know, so that, that's why I belabor that point because so often people hear that. I'll, I'll make one last point, and maybe, maybe I will put this on the docket for, for a sermon coming up. Um, okay. Let me. You hear the term Calvinism, and where that comes from is, is um, this was a big hot-button Reformation issue. I'll just give you a little history why. The Reformation, Luther and then Calvin after him, their contemporaries, were rediscovering the gospel of grace, and they're trying to free it from Roman Catholic theology of merit. And the reason why predestination and election and sovereignty came up was not because, oh, coincidentally, they like to debate these things, but because Luther and Calvin and the other reformers with them understood that if salvation ultimately, when you follow the plug back to the wall, doesn't have God there, but has you or I there, you will inevitably have a work salvation. Let me prove this to you. Okay, Two people are sitting on a park bench. They both hear the same gospel presentation. One of them comes to faith, the other does not. And now we want to say, why? Why not? Well, the, the free will person says, well, um, the one chose to, the other didn't choose to. I say, okay, well, why did they make that choice? At which point you have one of two options. You can say, there is no reason. And that's where some people honestly go to try to, to try to escape this. They want to get to what is a logical absurdity, an effect without a cause, a choice that has no foundation. They just did. Besides the fact that that's illogical, I mean, it's irrational, it also carries with it no moral significance. We only assign moral significance to choices. If you accidentally do something, if you accidentally trip someone, the person's not mad at you. You did it accidentally. You didn't mean to do that. It's only when you intend to do it that people get angry at you, right? 
Moral culpability comes with volition, comes with intentionality. If you didn't, I don't know why I chose it, I just chose it, is a meaningless, from a moral standpoint, decision. So the other option then is they chose it because they wanted to choose it, right? Why did you want to choose Christ? Okay? Two possible answers here. One, God put that desire in my heart. God did something. Or, well, I guess, and this, this is what Luther and Calvin and Erasmus and the Catholic guys on the other side fully understood, understood each other. You're either going to end up with something that sounds like this. Person A, the person who chose Christ, is either more intelligent, they're able to grasp, this is a good deal. This is a, this is a wonderful offer. And the other person was too stupid to realize that, right? Um, or person A was morally superior. He did not love his sin quite as much as person B. Person B rejects Christ because he doesn't want to let go of his sin. Person A, not quite as corrupt as person B. What you will inevitably end up with is smart, good people go to heaven and stupid, bad people go to hell. And there is your work salvation. Because if you press the issue beyond, well, they made a choice, to why did they make the choice? You will inevitably end up with something like that unless you say God. And, and they were pressing it there. And so for Luther and for Calvin, that's why establishing the sovereignty of God was an essential piece in establishing salvation by grace alone, without works. And apparently Zeb will bring us home. Go. I was just going to make a comment that that also uh, can lead to, as a, a on someone in your position, as a minister specifically, a great deal of either pride or despair. Oh, if you yeah. feel like people, if, if you feel like whether or not people are saved comes down to how you present the gospel, it's going to put an awful lot of burden on your shoulder. Oh, and man. if you are quote unquote good at it and you can, you know, get people to, to walk an aisle and, you know, yeah. pray a prayer, then you're going to get pretty arrogant pretty fast. And I mean, I've heard, I've heard people say, or I've heard of like famous events. Leave me alone saying, in five minutes with anyone and yeah, I can make, make a decision. Yeah, I can, I can save anybody in five minutes or something like that. And it's just, it's insanity. Yeah, or the, or the flip insanity. side. You're lying in bed, you shared your faith with someone, they didn't make a profession of faith. Oh, if only I'd said, if only I hadn't brought up, if only I'd gone to this passage, then they'd be saved. I, I couldn't possibly live with that type of stress. Um, okay, I will close this with that passage in 1 Corinthians I read earlier, you alluded to, and we'll be done um, for right now. 1 Corinthians 3, we, I read this to talk about how we are God's fellow workers, but there's another equally important truth. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's dealing with the, the factions at Corinth. He's narrowed it down to two factions, the Paul faction, the Apollos faction. In chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has established he planted the church. It was Paul's missionary journey, his evangelism that planted the church. He has moved on to other missionary ventures. Apollos has come in, and Apollos is now shepherding the flock. So you've got the church planter, and you've got the current pastor, something like that. And so Paul says this, what then is Apollos, verse 5, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each I planted, Apollos watered. So in this metaphor, planted means I evangelized. And Apollos watered. Apollos is teaching you. But God gave the growth. 
So when Paul showed up on the streets of Corinth with a foolish message, stuttering and stammering, as he freely admits in chapter 2, and people came to faith, why did they come to faith? Because God gave the growth. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so that's the protection, as Zeb said, from pride in ministry. Um, God makes things grow. Paul says, look, I'll be judged. He goes on to say, you can read it. I'll be judged for the faithfulness with which I labor. There is a scale in which I'm judged. I won't be judged, me. I will not be judged by the effectiveness of my ministry. I'll be judged by the faithfulness of my ministry. That'll be the measuring stick. Did I build carefully? Did I build with costly gems and, and gold? Or did I build with wood, hay, and straw? That, that's the analogy that Paul uses for how ministers will be measured and, and rewarded. And there will be some who built very carefully, very faithfully, who had very little results. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, built the ark over the course of 125 years, and at most had eight converts. Him, his wife, his sons, and their wives got on the boat. That's it. He was faithful. And there are people with mega churches who are not being faithful. And, and so that's not the measuring stick. But okay, we've gone over. We'll pick this up next week, and I'll try to find space in the new year sermon schedule to do a week or two on election and predestination. And All right, all right. God bless.